This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're just beginning a new series titled Monstrous Moms and Dastardly Dads. We all know that being a parent is the toughest job there is. It takes a great amount of time, sacrifice, and love to be a good parent, but the rewards are incomparable. To raise a human being to maturity who can navigate life successfully, find love and happiness, and fulfillment in their life's purpose is the ultimate goal. But what happens when a parent, due to their own poor upbringing, mental illness, or just plain selfishness, turns deadly. Over the next few episodes, I will detail cases where a parent goes bad, and their offspring are their victims. Join me for Chapter 1 as I share the case of Diane Downs. Just one additional warning besides the usual disclaimer before we begin. This case details crimes against children. If you are especially sensitive to this subject matter, please use discretion before listening. May 19, 1983. It was a mild spring night in Springfield, Oregon. At about 10.30 p.m., a small red sports car squealed up to the emergency room entrance at the Mackenzie Willamette Hospital. The driver did not exit the car, but instead began honking the car horn repeatedly. Emergency room nurses came running out and saw a young blonde woman standing outside of the car. Someone just shot my kids, she told them. When they peered into the car, they saw two small bodies slumped in the back seat. They began to lift the children from the car and carry them into the hospital. They were covered in blood. The older child, a girl, was not conscious. The younger one, a boy who was just a toddler, was moaning softly. As they began to rush them to the trauma center, the woman called out, Get Cheryl! She's on the floor! She hasn't moved at all! A nurse peered in and saw another small body, but this one was on the floor in the front seat, on the passenger side. She had been hidden, covered by a dark sweater that had been draped over her. All three children were then hurried into the trauma room. Their mother followed behind. The staff began to work quickly to see what they could do for the children. The last child found, the one on the front floorboards, seemed to be the worst off. As they worked to clear her air passages, they found blood clots blocking her throat. They found this odd. Most patients seen in an emergency situation were actively bleeding from their wounds. This child's blood seemed to be clotting already, which meant that the wound had happened a while ago. Blood begins to coagulate over time. They hooked up a heart monitor to her, but there was no longer any heartbeat. The child was dead. They found two bullet holes in the little girl's back, one over the right shoulder blade and one just below the left. The other two children were alive, but just barely. The second girl was bigger than the deceased child. She had two bullet wounds in the left chest. One bullet had exited her back, and one was still in her body. They also found a third through-and-through wound in her left hand, near the base of her thumb. This type of wound is often seen by gunshot victims who instinctively raise their hands to ward off a bullet being fired towards them. She registered no blood pressure, and a large hemorrhage was found in the left lung, making her unable to breathe. She was quickly losing blood and on the verge of death. As they worked to clear the clot and get air to her, her heart stopped. Doctors refused to give up, and they quickly shocked her heart and also inserted a line to infuse more blood into her. Miraculously, her heart started to beat again, and she was rushed into surgery. The little blonde boy, just a baby really, he couldn't have been more than three years old, was the only one of the three children who was conscious. He continued to cry softly as the doctors worked over him. A nurse stayed by his side the whole time, trying to comfort him. They found a bullet hole a fraction of an inch from his spinal column. The bullet had been fired at close range. The doctors could see black gunpowder from the gun's barrel around the bullet hole. One lung had collapsed, and the doctors quickly inserted an oxygen line. Air pumped in, helping the boy to breathe more freely. He began to cry louder. He was out of danger now, but the doctors feared the effects such a wound might mean, being located so close to his spinal cord. 
Because of the location between the T6 and T7 vertebrae, his arms would still function, but all feeling and movement below the chest might be threatened. The mother also had a wound. The nurse noticed a brightly colored beach towel wrapped around her arm from her elbow to her wrist. There was a bullet wound on the outside of her arm, almost halfway between the elbow and wrist. It was not life-threatening. It was cleaned and disinfected and wrapped in a bandage. Detectives from the Springfield Police Department were called by the hospital as soon as they realized there were gunshot victims. When they arrived, they interviewed the young mother. Her name, she said, was Elizabeth Downs, but she went by Diane, her middle name. The three children were hers. Christy Ann, the oldest, was eight. Cheryl Lynn was seven. And Stephen, called Danny, was three. Diane was 27 years old, blonde, tan, and thin. She was unusually composed, but the investigators surmised that she might be in shock after such a traumatic event. She recounted the events of that day. Diane worked as a mail carrier for the Cottage Grove Division of the U.S. Post Office. After work, she had gone by her parents' home. Her mother, Willa Dean, watched the kids when Diane was at work. Danny was with her all day, and she watched Cheryl and Christy after school. They all had dinner with Diane's parents, as they did most days, and then Diane had gone home. Later, she said she and the kids had taken a ride out to her friend Heather Plord's house. They visited for a few minutes, and the kids played with the Plord's horse. They then began the 20-minute drive home. Diane said they were laughing and talking on the way home while driving on Old Mohawk Road when she saw someone standing in the middle of the street. She said he looked like he needed help, so she stopped the car and got out, taking the keys with her. He told her he wanted her car, to which she answered, You've got to be kidding. Then, Diane said, the bushy-haired stranger leaned into the car and began shooting at the kids. She tried to pull him away from the car, and that's when he shot her in the arm. She faked throwing the keys into the brush on the side of the road, and when he went after them, she said she jumped in the car and drove off as fast as she could to get to help. The police decided to take Diane out to the area where the shooting had occurred. They were worried about an armed and dangerous man running around a rural area where a person might open their door to offer help and find themselves in a dangerous situation. She didn't remember exactly where she had been, but thought she might be able to find it again. As they walked out to the patrol car, they passed Diane's car. I hope my car is okay, she said. Does it have any bullet holes in it? She told them why she had refused to give the stranger her car. I just bought it, she explained. They drove down Marcola Road, and Diane directed them to a side road called Old Mohawk Road. The area was rural, and the road ran alongside a river. They stopped at a spot that was very isolated. There were no homes or other buildings on either side of the road, just fields that dropped down into the bank of the Little Mohawk River. It was dark and quiet, and there was no one around. They asked Diane why she had gotten off the main road into this isolated area. She said on the way home, she and the kids had decided to do some sightseeing. The kids loved to go for sightseeing drives, she explained. At 9.30 at night, they thought, in the dark? She'd also said at the hospital that they had been talking and laughing when she came upon the man in the road. Now, she said that the kids had fallen asleep. If they were asleep, the officers wondered, how could a man see the children lying down inside a dark car? How would he even know they were there to shoot them? Diane also suddenly remembered that she had seen an old yellow car parked on the side of the road. The police searched the location she pointed out, but could see no tracks or other disturbance in the area. She began to complain that her arm was starting to hurt more, so they drove her back to the hospital. They returned it just before midnight. Diane was told that her younger daughter, Cheryl, had died. The officer watched her reaction, thinking she might become hysterical. She almost didn't react at all. Detective Doug Welch would get to know Diane well. He found her demeanor right after the shootings to be unemotional, almost flat. She laughed inappropriately and often didn't seem to be tracking what she was being told or asked. She talked incessantly, a constant stream of verbal diarrhea. She was very high energy, emotional when talking about herself, but unemotional at almost all of their times, no matter the circumstances. She was told the condition of her two other children. Doctors told her that they were cautiously optimistic about Danny and explained the damage he'd suffered. You mean it missed his heart? Diane asked. Christy was in recovery after surgery. The little girl had come back from the dead. 
Diane entered the room and turned to the doctor, saying, I know that Christy has sustained brain damage, and I don't want you to sustain her life. The doctor later said he was outraged at her statement. That was very unusual, he said, and inappropriate. Tests had yet to show any brain damage. Detectives asked Diane if she owned any guns. She said she had a rifle in her closet at home. They asked if she would sign a search warrant so that they could enter her home. She gave her consent. Several officers went to Downs Duplex on Q Street. She told them she'd moved to Springfield from Arizona only two months earlier. She had worked for the post office in Chandler, Arizona, and had decided to move to Oregon for, quote, a fresh start. Her father, Wes Fredrickson, was the postmaster in Springfield and had helped her to get a transfer. Now, entering the duplex, the officers noticed that the place looked almost empty. There was no furniture in the living room except one chair and a television set. Boxes sat around the place, but they had yet to be unpacked. They found a few pictures on top of the television set, two of Diane herself and two of a dark-haired man. They found no pictures of the children. There was only one other item. A brass statuette of a unicorn sat on top of the set. There was an engraving at the base. It read, Christy, Cheryl, and Danny. I love you. Mom. May 13, 1983. Diane had made reference to this at the hospital. She had muttered, I should never have bought the unicorn. They wondered what it could mean. They checked the rest of the house. There was nothing that would identify it as a home where a woman with three children lived. There was no couch, no kitchen table or chairs, and most of the kitchen utensils were still packed. There was almost no food in the refrigerator either. They moved on to the closet where Diane had told them that they would find the rifle. They found the loaded weapon, but it was obvious it had not been fired in some time. The barrel was full of dust and lint. Diane had also asked them to bring her diary. It was an ordinary spiral notebook. As they flipped through it, they saw that it was written as a series of letters, and the date of the first letter was weeks earlier in April. The diary became evidence. Detectives had it copied before they took it to Diane at the hospital. The diary gave them insight into Diane's thoughts, ideas, and priorities. They used it as a springboard to find out what they needed to know about Elizabeth Diane Downs. Elizabeth Diane Fredrickson Downs was born August 7, 1955, to Wes and Willa Dean Fredrickson. She was the oldest of five children. Diane grew up in a traditional 1950s family, where her father worked and her mother stayed home and cared for the children. Wes was strict and stoic. He didn't show affection towards his children. Diane says he controlled her mother. Willa Dean was the passive partner, often deferring to her husband. Diane said that her mother paid much more attention to her husband, catering to him and his needs before those of her children. She felt ignored by her mother and criticized by her father. She said she was an ugly duckling as a young girl. She remembers being teased or ignored by her peers and had few friends. She was very bright and excelled academically. She would score 125 points on the IQ scale, just under what is considered genius level. She said her mother seemed to have no opinions, but her father had many. It was his way or the highway, she said, and Diane hated him. She also had no great love for her younger siblings. She was often put in charge of taking care of them, and she resented it. When they broke something, she said she would get blamed. The family lived in Arizona, but moved around the state often, making life even more difficult for shy and awkward Diane. Her father had begun working for the U.S. Postal Service when Diane was five, and he was transferred several times as he moved up the ladder. When she was around 12 years old, Diane said her father began to molest her. She said they never had intercourse, but there was a lot of touching and fondling. Her father would take her on rides, where he would make her take off her clothes once they were outside of town on a lonely road. Once, she became hysterical and tried to jump out of the car on a stretch of the highway. A highway patrol officer saw the car being driven erratically and pulled them over. As he approached, Diane said the trooper looked over at her and saw her quickly buttoning up her blouse. He asked her if she was okay, and she said she was. He asked again, but she continued to tell him that everything was fine. I couldn't tell him, she said. I had to shield myself and my family. If my dad went to jail, we'd have no food, no house. 
I told them I'd been to the doctor and had a shot, and that's why I was crying. The trooper asked her father to step out of the car and walked with him towards the police cruiser. She couldn't hear what was said, but afterwards she reported that her father drove in silence. The sexual abuse ended that day. When she was 14, her mother enrolled her in a charm school. She learned how to apply makeup, pluck her bushy eyebrows, and walk with grace. Boys began to pay attention to her, but she found it difficult to trust males, of course. And around this time, she began to talk, and talk, and talk, and talk. It was as if the floodgates opened and she couldn't stop. She also began to enjoy the attention she received from boys. She hit puberty and her body matured. She was thin and big-chested and now was considered a knockout. Diane met Steve Downs when she was 15. He was the same age and they attended high school together. He also lived across the street from the Fredericksons and he and Diane saw each other often. He was wild and rebellious and she liked that. They began having sex when she was 16. She graduated high school and applied and was accepted at a Bible college. She lasted for two semesters. While her goal was to attend medical school and become a doctor, she found in college for the first time that she was popular. She was kicked out of school for promiscuity as she was dating and sleeping with several boys. Her high school boyfriend Steve had joined the Navy, but she went home and waited for him to return. She turned 18, and she and Steve married in 1973. It was her way to get out of her parents' home. And she wanted children, she said. Soon after their wedding, however, Steve Downs told Diane that he had changed his mind. He didn't want kids right away. Maybe in a few years, he offered. She was furious. She could now see that Steve didn't love her like she thought. He was already cheating on her. She believed the only way she could get real pure love was to create it for herself. And for that, she needed her husband. She got off of birth control and soon found herself pregnant. She was thrilled. This, she said, would be a person who would love her unconditionally. Her daughter Christy was born on October 7, 1974. For the first time in her life, she said, she knew what love really was. But when Christy was only six months old, Diane joined the Air Force without telling anyone. She was sent for training to San Antonio, Texas, while Steve was left to care for the infant. After three weeks, Diane was discharged. She claimed a medical issue and was released. Steve and Diane were still teenagers with an infant to care for, and they fought over money and the stress of family life. Steve would send Diane and Christy to live with her parents, and the Fredericksons would send her right back, telling Steve they were his responsibility now. Diane said she didn't love Steve anymore, but when she found herself pregnant for the second time, she stayed. Cheryl Lynn Downs was born January 10, 1976. Christy had been an easy and lovable baby, but Cheryl was colicky and cried constantly. Diane wasn't feeling too much unconditional love this time. They decided not to have any more kids. They were struggling financially and still not getting along but she got pregnant a third time anyway. Diane was 20, with two kids, and said there was no way she was going to have another child now. She had an abortion. When Christy was two and Cheryl was nine months old, Diane left her husband. It would be the first of many times she would leave, only to return when she couldn't find a job or ran out of money. He always took her back, and she hated him for that, too. Inexplicably, Diane decided she wanted another child. Steve had since had a vasectomy, and she asked him to have it reversed, but he refused. Diane found a job working for a mobile home company wiring homes for electricity. She was the only female on the crew and enjoyed all the male attention. She began sleeping with several of her co-workers. She picked one of the men, the youngest and healthiest, she said, to father her next child. Steve found her in bed with the guy and started a fight. He hit both Diane and her boyfriend in the melee but it was too late. Diane was pregnant. Stephen Daniel Downs was born December 29, 1979. Even though Steve knew Danny was not his biological son, he adored him the second he saw him and treated him as his own. Diane would later admit that she was not a good mother to her three very young children. She hated her situation, hated Steve, and took out her anger and frustration on her children. 
She yelled constantly and would spank and hit her kids often. Cheryl was the most high energy of the three and would get the brunt of her mother's anger. Diane was an inconsistent parent at best, abusive and neglectful at worst. Sometimes she would dote on her children and would play with them and take them on special outings. Diane would sometimes act like a child herself, playing and running around with her kids. They loved it, but she would quickly turn on them and lash out in anger. They were often confused. Which mother would they have today? The nice one who loved them or the angry one that yelled and punished them? People who knew the Downs family in Arizona said the kids were often left alone. When Christy was six, Cheryl five, and Danny was only 15 months, Christy was often in charge of her two younger siblings. She was very protective of her little brother and sister. Both Diane and Steve were having affairs, and witnesses say the kids were often inappropriately dressed for the weather and would be outside alone after dark. Diane began working as a mail carrier at the Chandler Post Office and started sleeping with a series of her co-workers. Witnesses say that with Steve often gone when he and Diane were on the outs, Diane would be out with one boyfriend or another and put her social life in front of her children. Diane kicked her husband out once again, and she moved her current boyfriend, another co-worker from the post office, in with her. He was also a single parent, and his two daughters, a few years older than the Downs children, also came to stay with them. He said the cohabitation didn't last long. Steve was constantly dropping by, which was awkward and annoying, and he didn't like the way Diane treated her kids. Her kids seemed like a pain in the ass to her, he said. She felt that kids were inferior. They weren't even allowed in the living room. She also called her kids vulgar and demeaning names, he added. When she began to lash out at his daughters, he left. Danny was enrolled in preschool, and Christy was in school all day. But Cheryl was in kindergarten, which let out at half day. She would come home to a locked house and would sit on the porch for hours, waiting for her mother to arrive. She would sometimes wander to the neighbors' homes when she had to go to the bathroom or got hungry. Mary Ward lived down the street from the Downs' house and noticed the little girl often wandering around alone. She worried about her and began to invite her in to play and have a snack with her children until her mother arrived. Once, she didn't see Diane around for several days and then found out that her ex-husband Steve was living in the home and caring for the children. This time, Diane had left. When their father was around, Mary Ward said, the children seemed cleaner and better fed. But amazingly, Diane decided that she wanted to become a surrogate mother. She'd seen the talk show with Donahue in 1980 and heard how some couples, unable to conceive their own children, would pay fertile women to conceive and carry their babies for them. Of course, Diane was interested when she found out the women were paid $10,000 for providing this service. But she was even more excited about the prospect of being needed by these people. Diane was a person who needed an enormous amount of attention. She was a bottomless pit of need. It was this quality that drove men away. Diane almost never had any female friends. The attention she needed was from men, and she was most interested in married men. Except for Steve Downs and the man who had fathered Danny, all of Diane's boyfriends were married. She didn't try to hide her affairs either, which would make most women view her as an immoral predator. Diane loved being pregnant. She received the most attention when she was pregnant. She was an attractive woman, but when she was pregnant, she practically glowed. People, men and women alike, were drawn to the beautiful young expectant mother and would often smile at her and ask her questions. She reveled in this attention. When she was pregnant, she also romanticized motherhood. She would talk about her role in creating a miracle. Babies loved and needed their mothers unconditionally. They were a constant well of love in her eyes. But it seems, after they were born and needed her attention for food, comfort, love, security, they were just a burden. For Diane, being a surrogate for another couple gave her all of the perks of pregnancy without any of the hassle of caring for a needy baby. She immediately sent a letter to the surrogate parenting clinic in Kentucky that had been featured on the Donahue show. She told them she was 24 years old, 5 foot 5 inches tall, 123 pounds, with blonde hair and green eyes, and was the mother of three healthy children. She said she was married and didn't smoke or drink. Diane, of course, lied about a few of the details. She most definitely did drink, and she was in the middle of divorce proceedings. She was sent a form to fill out to be considered as a surrogate. She was also scheduled to see a psychiatrist to be assessed psychologically. 
The psychiatrist, after interviewing her, had serious doubts about Diane. He described her as neurotic and wrote, These findings were consistent with, but not absolutely diagnostic, of major psychopathology. In other words, her test results may have been early warnings of insanity or just strong personality quirks. She flunked her first series of psychological tests because the examiner didn't believe she would surrender a surrogate baby. But the clinic did not report this finding to Diane. They considered her a good candidate and worked instead to locate a psychiatrist who would give her a passing mark. The next psychiatrist reported that Diane could shut her emotions down at will, like flicking off a light switch. He also diagnosed her with histrionic personality disorder. HPD is a personality disorder that, as defined by the American Psychological Association, is characterized by a pattern of excessive attention-seeking emotions, including inappropriate seductive behaviors and an excessive need for approval. Histrionic people are lively, dramatic, flirtatious, exaggerate their behaviors and emotions, and crave stimulation. While the doctor thought that it was unclear whether Diane would be able to surrender the surrogate baby, he also suggested that her participation in the surrogate program might help her to work through the guilt she still felt over the abortion she'd had five years earlier. He gave her a passing mark. The doctor had hit the nail on the head. In her mind, Diane believed that by carrying a baby for another couple, she would make up for the life she had terminated when she had the abortion. Diane often talked about substitutes. She substituted the love she would receive from her children for the love she didn't receive from her husband. She substituted the attention she didn't receive from her parents as a child for the easy attention she received from men. Diane was inseminated at the clinic in Kentucky. She was not allowed to know the identity of the parents of the child she was carrying, but she could communicate with them through the agency. She wrote cards and letters that expressed her happiness at the wonderful gift she was giving another couple. She would later say, These people needed me. It made me somebody. And it gave her attention. She was interviewed for the Washington Post that was covering a story about surrogate parenting. Diane's picture was also published in the paper. She was on cloud nine. When her delivery time was close, she was to be flown to Kentucky where the baby would be delivered. Since it would be dangerous for her to travel too late into the pregnancy, she would need to be there several weeks prior and for a recovery period after. She would not see her own children for six weeks. During that time, Diane sent her children to stay with her parents, who'd since moved to Oregon. She gave birth to a baby girl on May 7, 1982. She spent a few hours with the baby and three days later saw her one last time before leaving the hospital. She signed all the papers to give up the baby and received her $10,000 fee before returning to Arizona. With the money she received, she purchased a mobile home in Chandler and all new furniture. Diane was still a dreamer and believed that she could take night school classes, complete a bachelor's degree, and continue on to medical school to become a doctor. She also drew up plans for her dream home. Interestingly, there was no kitchen, and the children's quarters were separated by a catwalk that divided it from the rest of the house, where the living room and master bedroom were located. She continued dating and sleeping with her co-workers, and in the summer of 1982, she set her sights on one in particular, Robert Knickerbocker, called Nick. Side note, if you read the book by Anne Rule about the Diane Downs case, Small Sacrifices, or have seen the movie by the same name, Robert Knickerbocker is called Lou Lewiston. He's come out publicly several times and stated his real name. Perhaps he was called Lou previously to shield him from the press during the trial. While most thought that Diane had a brief affair with Nick, and he tried to quickly break it off while she persisted, this is far from the case as you'll hear. They began an affair that summer. Nick was married, but had no children. He'd known early on in life that he didn't want to have children, and had undergone a vasectomy. Nick met Diane at work. He was also a mail carrier. She was pregnant with the surrogate baby when they first met, and they became friends. After she came back from delivering the baby, she began to hang around him a lot. They would work in the post office warehouse together, and Diane took to wearing cut-off shorts and crop tops with no bra. It was obvious she was coming on to him, and at first, he said he just thought they'd have a fling. He'd had affairs before, he said, and it was never serious. She talked about wanting to be inseminated again, and also starting her own surrogate parenting clinic and becoming a doctor. 
She was a big talker, full of dreams, he said. He didn't take any of it very seriously, but she seemed to. She complained to him about not having a boyfriend. She told him she got pregnant too easily, and she was afraid that would jeopardize her chances of being a surrogate again. He joked to her that she should have an affair with him, since he couldn't get her pregnant. After that, he said, Diane came at him aggressively, and they began sleeping together, meeting for an hour in her trailer, after work, or in one of their cars. He tried to be discreet, but Diane made it pretty obvious to their co-workers about their affair. Nick said he didn't see the kids often. He thought it was wrong to carry on an affair with kids around, and he told her so. She would send him off with Steve, the neighbor Mary Ward, or her Aunt Irene when she was with Nick. After a few weeks, Diane began to talk about marrying him. She told him she knew he wasn't interested in being a father, but she'd find a way that the kids wouldn't bother him. He continued to tell her that he had no intention of leaving his wife, but she ignored this. In the fall of 1982, a few months into the affair, she sent the children to live with Steve. She began taking college classes in between her shifts at the post office. She lasted only a few weeks into the semester. She was most concerned that she didn't have enough time to spend with Nick. When Diane announced to Nick that she had been diagnosed with a venereal disease, he had to tell his wife about the affair. She said she already knew and was just waiting for him to admit it. Diane thought his forced confession to his wife would mean the end of his marriage. She was wrong. Nick's wife forgave him, and they decided to work on their marriage. Diane flew to Kentucky to be inseminated with another surrogate baby. She did not tell them about her recent bout with venereal disease. The insemination did not take. She flew home depressed, and it became worse when Nick told her that he'd made up with his wife and couldn't see her anymore. She began to threaten suicide to Steve, which had happened before, but now, he said, she was acting very weird. She ran to the bedroom in the mobile home and locked herself in. She threatened to kill herself, and he heard a gun go off and broke down the door. She had not shot herself, but had put a bullet into the floor. She now pointed the gun, a twenty-two pistol, at him, but he took it away from her before he left. Diane continued to persuade Nick to see her. He finally gave in, and the affair continued. Now, she got a rose tattooed on her shoulder with his name underneath. She badgered him to get a matching tattoo with her name inscribed. She said that would prove they belonged to each other. He finally gave in and got the tattoo, but refused to have her name tattooed underneath. He was still living with his wife. She'd only been living in her mobile home for six months when it burned down. The fire marshal suspected arson, but couldn't prove it hadn't been an electrical short or some other accident. Diane had only made four of the $300 payments on the loan and received $7,000 in insurance money to repair the damage. She never did. She moved in temporarily with a friend before moving back in with Steve and the children. Steve and Diane continued the battle, often in front of their frightened children. Once, he was with the kids in front of his home when Diane came racing up the street in her car. She leaned across the front seat and threatened him with a gun. He dove through the window to grab it from her, and she took off with him holding onto the window frame for dear life, before falling off and rolling into the street. The kids were screaming for her to stop and terrified for their father, but Diane just laughed. Diane eventually moved back into her damaged trailer. Only a portion of it had burned. Later, both she and Steve would admit that they had conspired to burn it down for the insurance money. Steve set the fire. It was supposed to burn to the ground, but it didn't, so Diane didn't receive the full payout. She continued to see Nick until late fall. She even found a small apartment and persuaded him to sign a lease with her. He never moved in. She had her children write messages to him saying they loved and missed him. He found this ridiculous since he didn't even know her children, he said, only having been around them a few times. They were sweet kids, he said, but I hardly ever saw them, and I didn't want to be their daddy. Nick did ask his wife for a divorce, but she refused. She wasn't giving up her husband to Diane without a fight. He said when he was with Diane, he couldn't think. She talked and talked, and he found himself giving in to her plans. But he really didn't want to end his marriage. When he was home, Diane would call the house and even speak to his wife. Nick's wife decided to write it out. She knew her husband would come to his senses and leave crazy Diane for good. Crazy Diane did open up her own surrogate parenting clinic in Arizona. She took a lease on an office and gave interviews to local media. 
She lied and said she had several surrogate mothers who had already given birth or were expecting. She told about her own experience at the renowned clinic in Kentucky. When Nick's wife saw the article, she was appalled. She called the clinic in Kentucky and told them all about Diane Downs, including her bout with venereal disease. They closed Ms. Downs' file. She was no longer welcome as a surrogate at their clinic. Authorities in Arizona had also seen the article and informed her that a surrogate program like the one she was running was illegal in their state. Now Diane began to double down on her efforts to win Nick for herself completely. She kept pushing him to move in with her. He was living apart from his wife, but still continued to see her and do chores and errands for her. Diane was jealous and finally asked him who he loved more, her or his wife. He said his wife, and she went ballistic. That was the last straw for Nick. He moved back home with his wife. Diane harassed the couple for days, coming over and pounding on the door and calling the house nonstop. They both told her to go away, but she continued. Nick and his wife left for a vacation to Texas for a couple of weeks to escape Diane's harassment. Diane couldn't believe he left for Texas without telling her first. She decided her only option was to scare him into coming back to her. She requested a transfer from the Chandler Post Office to an office in the Eugene, Oregon area, where her father was postmaster. Her supervisors in Chandler couldn't wait to be rid of her and approved her transfer immediately. She then contacted Nick and told him he wouldn't have to be afraid of her bothering him anymore. She was moving to Oregon. Nick said, I think she meant to scare me, and she was sure I'd follow her. Diane did believe he would follow her. She packed up her kids and all her belongings in April of 1983 and moved to Oregon. She was only preparing a place for Nick to come and be with her, and far away from his wife. She knew if she could get him alone, she could talk him into living with her and eventually marrying her. But Nick said, Once the sound of her talking stopped, I could think again. I didn't want to be with Diane. I wanted to be with my wife. So finally, after Diane was safely moved to Oregon, he told her over the phone that it was over. He wasn't moving to be with her, and that was that. Diane made one last effort to convince him. A week after telling her it was over, Diane arrived back in Arizona and found him on his mail route. He didn't even know she was in town. She walked up to him wearing jeans and a string bikini top. Nick says she told him she'd come to give him the gold chain back that he'd given to her. Then she began to talk at him again, about her love for him, all the plans she'd made for them to be together, etc. I told her I wasn't going to Oregon, Nick told investigators. I told her I just didn't want to be a daddy. Then he drove off in his mail truck. That was the last time he saw her. And Nick told them one more thing. He'd seen a thirty-eight pistol and a twenty-two target pistol in the trunk of her car the night before she left for Oregon. Investigators had found twenty-two caliber casings lying in blood in the backseat of Diane's car the night of the shooting. I think Diane shot her kids, Nick told them. The investigators began to suspect Diane, but not right away. They, like most people, couldn't begin to believe that a mother could shoot her own babies in cold blood. She was at first given the benefit of the doubt, and a thorough investigation was conducted to find the bushy-haired stranger that had attacked Diane and her children. They could find no evidence that anyone else had been in the area where she said the shooting occurred. Some of the reasons that they turned their attention to Diane as the shooter was first her bizarre behavior. They didn't see one tear from Diane that night, or any other time. She was eerily composed for having one dead child and two others who barely survived. She seemed to complain more about her wounded arm. That was another thing, they thought. A person who was trying to carjack someone would first subdue the biggest threat, the adult, not three defenseless children. Diane had a minor wound, and yes, she needed surgery to repair a broken bone in her arm. But no vital organs were damaged unlike the children. It was easy to believe that she could have shot herself, in the easiest and least dangerous place possible. Second, both her ex-husband Steve and Bob Knickerbocker told the investigators that Diane did own a twenty-two pistol, a fact that she had not admitted to them when they asked her if she had any firearms. They undertook an extensive search to try and find the weapon used in the shooting, but it would never be found. However, they would be able to match tool marks on the bullet casings found at the crime scene with cartridges found at the home in Arizona 
where Diane had once lived. Tool marks are left on bullet casings by a gun's extractor and ejector by the firing pin. Unique marks are left by each gun. It's kind of like a gun's fingerprint, if you will. Even if a bullet has not been fired from a gun, but has merely been worked through the magazine, these unique marks will be left on the casing. Investigators first tried to find the bullets that Steve Downs said Diane had fired into the bathroom floor of the mobile home in Arizona. They were finally able to find them, but they were so damaged that they weren't much use. But they were able to find bullet casings that hadn't been fired. They had the distinctive letter U stamped on them like the bullet casings found at the crime scene, and they had matching tool marks made by the murder weapon. This definitively proved to investigators that the bullets found in Arizona had been in the same weapon used to shoot the children. Now investigators knew that Diane was the shooter, but they were afraid a jury would be confused by the tool mark evidence. They knew they needed more to make sure they could put Diane away, where she could never harm her surviving children again. They needed Christy to testify that it was her mother who had pulled the trigger. But since the shooting, Christy had been in a very fragile state emotionally, and she was unable to speak. After being shot, Christy had suffered a stroke that affected the portion of her brain that controlled speech. Her memory was still completely intact, but it was difficult for her to find the words to describe what she wanted to say. At first, Christy was completely mute. Whether due to the stroke damage or the emotional trauma she'd suffered at being shot or a combination was not clear. It would take time and care to coax the story out of Christy that would help them prove that Diane was the shooter. They could not compromise Christy's recovery, mentally or emotionally, and so they would have to wait. There was an incident just a few days after the shooting that convinced everyone involved, investigators, prosecutors, and hospital staff, that Christy needed protection from her mother. As Christy lay in her hospital room, still hooked up to machines that were monitoring her vital signs, Diane entered one evening to see her. It was the first time she'd come to see her since the night of the shooting. Someone from the district attorney's office had been watching guard over Christy and Danny for their safety. This evening, it was Paul Alton, one of the investigators. He said Diane entered and silently stared down at her daughter. She grabbed Christy's hand and squeezed it hard, staring into her eyes. Diane wasn't smiling, Alton said. She spoke through clenched teeth. Christy, I love you. I love you, she repeated over and over. As Alton watched, he noticed Christy's eyes open wide and saw her heart monitor begin to react. Her heart rate jumped from 104 beats per minute to 147 as she looked at her mother. Diane left the room and it took several minutes for her heart rate to drop back down. Alton says he looked at Christy and saw only pure fear in her eyes. Diane had surgery on her arm and remained in the hospital for several days. Her children, however, had a long road ahead of them for recovery. But Diane insisted that she was going to take the children home with her as soon as she left. Everyone knew this was ludicrous and very dangerous for the children. When they told her that Danny's condition, paralysis below the chest, was most likely permanent, Diane insisted that she could get him to walk again. All he needed was his mother's love. Fred Hugie, the assistant district attorney, had become very protective of Christy and Danny, often spending all night sitting in their hospital room as a silent sentinel. He requested and received an emergency protective order placing both Danny and Christy under the temporary care of the Oregon State Children's Services Division. Diane found out the day after her surgery that she would not be allowed to take her children home, nor was she allowed to have unsupervised visits with them. Meanwhile, while waiting for Christy to tell what she knew, investigators continued to build a case against Diane Downs. They found a witness, Joseph Inman, who had been driving on Old Mohawk Road on the night of the shooting. He had left his home at 10 minutes after 10 p.m., and as he drove down the dark road, he said he had to slow to a crawl because there was a red car with Arizona's license plates in front of him, traveling at only about 5 to 7 miles per hour. He thought the driver must be lost and possibly looking for an address. After two or three minutes, he passed the car. It was too dark to see inside, and he didn't see the driver. The time he said he'd encountered the car would have been after the shooting had taken place. 
This would directly contradict Diane's account of having drove frantically and as quickly as possible to the hospital. The witness said he heard no cries for help, no honking of the car horn, or any other evidence of a frantic driver trying to summon help. If Diane Downs had taken her time getting her children to the hospital, perhaps she was waiting to make sure they were beyond help. This might also explain why their blood was already beginning to clot from the bullet wounds they received. Investigators also felt they had solved the riddle about the unicorn statue. It seemed to be some kind of memorial or memento, as Diane had it engraved with the names of the children and a date, May 13, 1983, six days before the shooting. May 13th was Friday the 13th. Was this the day Diane had originally picked to end their lives? They checked her diary and found that she had spent that day taking the kids to the beach. They had driven around afterwards for a while, Diane driving aimlessly. It grew dark and the kids began to complain about being hungry. She then drove home. Perhaps she didn't find a remote enough location, or perhaps she lost her nerve. But investigators believe she had considered this the day but hadn't gone through with it. Before Diane was forbidden from seeing her children, she visited Christy in the hospital a few times. She would lay next to her in the bed and whisper to her. One day, she brought the unicorn statue to Christy's room. She showed Christy the names in the inscription, I love you, Mom. Her mother then told her that unicorns never died, and that meant that Cheryl would never die. Christy was confused. Her sister was dead, and she knew it. Didn't her mother remember? After five weeks, Christy Downs was released from the hospital. She was very thin and fragile-looking, and her arm would remain paralyzed, but she was alive. She was placed with a foster family, the Slavens, and Fred Hugie would be a constant presence. He had become very attached to the Downs' children. Diane's visiting privileges had been rescinded. Christy never asked for her mother, never even mentioned her, the Slavens reported. She still had trouble with speech, but continued to make progress. She saw a child therapist on an ongoing basis. She suffered from terrible nightmares and would get so scared sometimes she was almost catatonic. Little by little, the consistent routine, love, and caring in the Slaven home helped Christy relax and even smile sometimes. Danny was released from the hospital after almost four months and would live with the Slavens as well. Danny had no feeling below the chest, but he was coping well. Sometimes he was a happy, normal little boy, but sometimes his moods would swing wildly and he'd lash out in anger. He would also have a therapist to help him deal with the trauma he'd suffered. The district attorney's office wanted to arrest Diane Downs for the murder of her daughter Cheryl and the attempted murder of Christy and Danny, but they had to wait. In the state of Oregon, they were required to bring their evidence before a judge within 90 days of the arrest. They were not confident they would have their entire case ready that soon, especially since they knew it would probably hinge on Christie's testimony, and she was nowhere near ready for that. Instead, they convened a grand jury in May of 1983. The grand jury system allows selected members of the community to meet in secret to hear testimony and weigh evidence to decide if a suspect should be indicted. No defense attorneys or reporters can be present at the proceedings. Diane had moved home to live with her parents after her release from the hospital. Her father now helped her to find an attorney, although she still had not been charged with any crime. Diane was scheduled to appear before the grand jury, and she and her attorney fought the subpoena. For a crime victim to refuse to appear before a grand jury is almost unheard of. When her attorney, Jim Jagger, was asked about her refusal to appear, he answered, You know who shot the kids? and I know who shot the kids. Jagger also would arrange a private polygraph test to be administered to his client. Diane flunked it. No one was told, of course. It was now February of 1984, and many people, including Diane and her family members, had been called to testify before the grand jury. They now handed down their decision. The state of Oregon was charging Diane Downs with one count of murder, two counts of attempted murder, and two counts of assault in the first degree. Diane Downs was arrested and booked into jail. What the district attorney's office didn't know was that at the time of her arrest, she had been on the streets for 24 hours. Her father had just thrown her out of his home. Diane, knowing that charges against her were imminent, confronted her father for the first time about the sexual abuse that had occurred when she was a child. 
She was willing to talk now, perhaps, to garner some sympathy from the public who suspected her of murder. Her father blew up at the accusation and ordered her out of the house. While Wes Fredrickson would become angry whenever the abuse of his daughter was mentioned, he would never actually deny that it hadn't happened. One other piece of information the prosecutors didn't know was that Diane Downs was pregnant once again. Just weeks before her arrest, Diane had met a young university professor in a park and struck up a conversation. One thing Diane always knew how to do was seduce men. This time she had a goal in mind. She was alone. Her kids had been taken away from her, and Nick was gone from her life. She had at first been portrayed sympathetically by the media, but as time went on, suspicions about her role in the shooting grew. She would hang out at bars and try to talk up men, but most wouldn't touch her with a 10-foot pole. So when she saw interest in the young professor's eyes, she began to reel him in. She always knew when she would be the most fertile and planned a date with him during that time. It wasn't long before she was pregnant. Now the state would have to put on a case in front of a jury with an obviously pregnant defendant. Would her condition make her more sympathetic? They had no choice but to go ahead with the trial. Interesting side note to give you just a little taste of how crazy this case is. While Diane was in jail waiting for her trial to begin, she was, let's say, a little lonely. She was receiving letters in jail from people around the country. Her case had become national news. She began receiving letters from one man who intrigued her. She became his pen pal. Randall Brent Woodfield was 34 years old at the time he began corresponding with Diane Downs. He was from a respected Oregon family and had been a sports star at Portland State University and a one-time draft choice of the Green Bay Packers. But he was also a convicted rapist and serial killer. He had hunted his victims on the interstate in between Seattle and Northern California. He was a serial killer known as the I-5 killer. He and Diane, who he called Blondie, began writing explicitly sexual letters to each other. They exchanged photos. Woodfield flattered her by telling her he would masturbate over hers. She also sent him pictures of her children. Large crowds fought to be spectators of the state of Oregon versus Diane Downs. The trial began on May 10, 1984. The state laid out their case. Diane's motive was lust for a married man who did not want children. She had used a 22 Ruger pistol to shoot her children that she had brought with her from Arizona. They used excerpts from Diane's own diary as evidence. Diane's attorney, Jim Jagger, defended her by saying that she was innocent and that there was a killer on the loose that the state didn't bother to try to find. As to Diane's lack of emotion over the events, he would show that she had shut off her emotions due to the sexual abuse and trauma she had suffered as a child. Witnesses were called to the stand, including the doctors and nurses on duty at the hospital the night Diane arrived with her children, Joseph Inman, who'd seen the red car creeping slowly down Old Mohawk Road the night of the shooting, and some of Diane's co-workers and her family. But the three witnesses the spectators most wanted to see testify were Robert Knickerbocker, Christy Downs, and Diane herself. Nick testified about Diane's obsession with him and her insistence that they would be together. He told of their whole sordid history, the 17 months he'd spent in his on-again, off-again relationship with Diane. He testified how he told Diane he wouldn't leave his wife and that he didn't want children. He also described seeing the gun in Diane's car trunk the night she'd left Arizona. While he testified, Diane barely looked at him. Almost exactly one year after she was shot, Christy Downs took the stand to testify. She looked impossibly small and frail. The jurors instantly felt sympathy for the obviously scared and shy little girl. Christy entered the courtroom, and mother and daughter saw each other for the first time in seven months. They both began to cry. She took the stand, still crying. Diane smiled brightly at her. Christy was now nine years old. After the prosecutor took her through questions to determine that she knew the difference between the truth and a lie, Hughie took Christy through the events of May 19, 1983. After describing the visit to the Plord's home and seeing the horses, he asked her about the car ride home. Christy, due to her stroke, had a hard time pronouncing the word yes and would instead use the word yeah. Do you remember there was a time when the car stopped? he asked. Yeah, Christy answered, and now she began to cry, but she kept going. Did you see any other people around? 
Did you see any person standing in the road? No, Christy answered. When the car stopped, what did your mom do? She got out and she pulled the lever that went to the trunk. Did you see her come back into the car? Yeah. What did you see then? She kneeled down and Christy began to sob. After a minute or two, Hughie asked, What happened then? She shot Cheryl, she answered. Diane now was also crying. And you saw that happen? Yeah. Was the music still playing, Hughie asked. Hughie asked this question because Diane had told police that they had been listening to their favorite song playing on a tape that was in the car's tape deck. The song was Hungry Like the Wolf by Duran Duran. But Diane had also said that she had taken the keys out of the car when she got out after seeing the man in the road. She had the keys in her hand, she'd said, and had even faked throwing them to divert the man's attention so she could jump back into the car. But investigators discovered that the type of tape deck Diane had in her car would only play if the engine was running, meaning the keys had to be in the ignition. If Christy remembered the music still playing, it meant that Diane's story about leaving the car with the keys to confront the stranger was a lie. Hughie continued, Do you remember what happened after you saw Cheryl get shot? She leaned over to the back seat and she shot Danny. What happened then? She standed up and went to the back of the seat on the... She began to cry again. Spectators began to cry as well. Do you remember when you got shot? Hughie asked softly. Yeah, she choked out, holding a handkerchief to her face. Who shot you? My mom. After a few minutes, Hughie asked, Christy, has anyone ever told you to lie about this? No. And then, Christy, do you still love your mom? Yeah, she answered. Everyone in the courtroom was crying now. The state went through its evidence with ballistics experts about the tool marks matching the bullet casings from the crime scene and the two bullets found in Diane's home. The defense tried to question the chain of evidence and the expert testimony. Meanwhile, Diane's due date was reported to be in July, and when she was called to testify on May 31st, she was hugely pregnant. She wore a demure royal blue maternity dress. Her attorney first worked to prepare the jury for what would probably be inappropriate reactions from Diane. Was she aware, he asked, that she was smiling? Didn't she understand this was serious? She blamed her father. She said as a little girl she was not allowed to smile or cry. Emotions were forbidden. She learned to keep her real feelings to herself. She told about the bullying from her father and neglect from her mother. He then questioned her about the sexual abuse. She said it was true that her father had molested her beginning at the age of 12. She said she'd never told her mother or anyone else until she told Steve Downs when they were first dating. He asked her about the witnesses who said she neglected her kids. She said Steve had been the neglectful parent, not her. She admitted to being impatient with the kids at first. She used to yell at them a lot and shake them when she was frustrated. But this was because Steve didn't help her at all with the children, and she was overwhelmed. Once she divorced her ex-husband, she said, all that stopped, and she was a good mother to her children. She still insisted that a stranger had shot her and her children. She had to account for the time she left the Plord's house and her arrival at the hospital at 10.30. She should have gotten to the hospital much earlier than she did. How did she account for the lost time? Now she said that Christy and Danny had fallen asleep, but that Cheryl was still babbling away. They talked for a few minutes parked on the side of the road. I always believe that a bit of truth often gets mixed in with a lie, and I wonder about Diane's statement here. Maybe it was true that Christy and Danny did fall asleep, and perhaps Diane was waiting for Cheryl to fall asleep as well, so that she could shoot them without their knowledge. Diane said that Cheryl curled up on the floor of the passenger seat, and she then sat going through her checkbook for a few minutes before she drove off. That's when she claims to have seen the man in the road. She now accounted for the lost time but it's pretty unbelievable that you'd sit in a car on a dark road with your three sleeping children balancing your checkbook when you're only a few minutes from your home. On cross-examination, Hughie took Diane through all the versions of the night of the shooting she had told over time. Her story had changed with each telling. 
and there was one more piece of evidence of her guilt that he was able to draw out. Diane still insisted she drove as fast as possible to the hospital with her dying children. But when she arrived, her arm had been carefully wrapped in a neatly folded towel. If she had been so frantic and had not stopped or slowed at all, how had she been able to do so? You took care of yourself, Hugie said. In Diane's description of the shooting, the man had been outside of the car. But the wounds on the children were all near contact wounds. He'd have to have had arms like Wilt Chamberlain, Hugie said. He also said the timetable just didn't fly. It had taken her 18 minutes to go eight-tenths of a mile. Would a mother who was frantically trying to get help for her children drive so slowly? The trial ended on Wednesday, June 13th, six weeks after it had begun. The jury deliberated for three days and nights before coming to a decision. The verdict was announced at almost 1 a.m. on June 17, 1984. Guilty of two counts of attempted murder in the first degree. Guilty of two counts of first degree assault. Guilty of one count of murder. Diane Downs had been convicted on all charges. Ten days later, Diane gave birth to a healthy baby girl. During the trial, it had been determined that Diane's baby would be surrendered to the state and put up for adoption. She would not be able to keep legal custody of the child or determine a caregiver. The biological father had already signed documents releasing his claim to the baby. Diane had written him urging him to raise her, but he'd refused. Diane was sentenced to life plus 50 years in prison, with a 25-year mandatory minimum sentence. Before he sent her to prison, the judge stated, The court hopes the defendant will never again be free. I've come as close to that as possible. Doug Welch from the DA's office arrived to escort Diane to prison. On the way there, she flirted with him. He was amused. She was wearing skin-tight jeans and thigh-high boots. What's wrong, Doug? she asked him. Haven't you ever seen boots like these before? Only on Batgirl, he answered. <music> Diane was sent to the Oregon State Correctional Center for Women. She began the appeals process, but every appeal was rejected. In 1985, the Oregon State Parole Board met to consider her chances for parole. Many people think that when a prisoner receives a parole hearing, it means they will be released soon after if they are granted parole. This is not entirely correct. Like Diane, many prisoners have a mandatory minimum sentence that they must complete before a parole date can be set. When the parole board meets to consider a parole date, even if they vote for approval, the date of release can still be years into the future. Or they can meet to determine when an inmate can be considered for parole. This was what the meeting in 1985 was to determine. The parole board decided that Diane Downs would not be considered for parole until 2009. Diane continued to believe she would be granted a new trial and did several television interviews during her time in prison. She was still living in a fantasy world. She said she would be out in a matter of months, or at most a year, when the real killer was caught. She believed she would be reunited with her children and continued to send them letters and cards that were returned unopened. She said she was writing a book to tell the real story about who shot her children. Fred Hugie, the assistant district attorney who prosecuted Diane Downs, adopted Christy and Danny Downs in 1984. He had become attached to the children as he spent days and nights with them in their hospital room and afterwards leading up to and during the trial. He said that the night he walked into the ER and saw those two little children hooked up to machines to keep them alive, the case became personal to him. He and his wife Joanne obtained consent from Steve Downs, Christie's father, and Danny's biological father to raise the children as their own. Christie's verbal abilities continued to improve, and she was an intelligent child, mature beyond her years. Danny, while remaining paralyzed from the chest down, nevertheless became a gifted athlete as a competitive swimmer on his high school team. He went on to college and excelled in computer sciences. The baby daughter that was adopted soon after Diane went to prison grew up in Bend, Oregon. She would know about being adopted, but didn't find out all the particulars about her infamous mother until her teen years. She would later contact her. I will share that story as a bonus episode for our Patreon supporters. You can donate as little as $5 to have access to that bonus episode and others in the future. 
Links to the Patreon page are in the show notes. On July 11, 1987, Diane Downs escaped from prison. All the people connected to the case were notified. Her children were understandably terrified. Robert Knickerbocker was concerned for the safety of his wife and himself as well. It was discovered that Diane had scaled a fence, threw a blanket over the razor wire, and jumped down over the other side into freedom. She'd been wearing several layers of clothes. A few miles down the road, she was picked up by an unsuspecting couple when she told them she needed to get to a phone to report a car accident. That was the last anyone saw of her for 10 days. Diane used her skills at manipulating men to carry out her escape. She had begun communicating with the husband of one of her cellmates. From the cellmate, she'd learned that he lived in a nearby town. She obtained the address and arrived at his home, where she holed up with him. Prison officials were able to find the impression of the address on a tablet in her cell. She was found and returned to custody. She received a five-year sentence for the escape. They feared that she might have gotten pregnant again during her time on the run. The husband of the cellmate admitted that he was in love with her. But fortunately, she was not pregnant. Fred Huey requested that Diane be sent to a more secure facility further away. He was raising Christy and Danny a mere 90 minutes from the prison. They approved a transfer, and she was sent first to the Clinton Correctional Facility in New Jersey. In 1994, she was transferred to the Valley State Prison for Women in Chowchilla, California. Her first parole hearing was in 2008. She still denied any involvement in the crime. The Lane County District Attorney wrote to the parole board, Downs continues to fail to demonstrate any honest insight into her criminal behavior. Even after her convictions, she continues to fabricate new versions of events under which the crimes occurred. He also wrote, she alternately refers to her assailants as a bushy-haired stranger, two men wearing ski masks, or drug dealers and corrupt law enforcement officials. She was denied parole. She had a second parole hearing in 2010, where she was once again denied. As a result of a new Oregon law, she will not be eligible for another parole hearing until 2020, when she will be 65 years old. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our marketing assistant is Nancy Chen, and our theme music is by Cesare Gray. This week's winners of OUAC sticker packs are Nala Rhodesian, Freedom Sings, and Words Player 82. Send me your mailing address to receive your prize. And if you want to be in the drawing, all you have to do is write a review for the show on iTunes. Thank you so much. Until next time, be good to one another.